We've looked at the practices of risk-taking mission and service. Last week, we looked at extravagant generosity. This week, our theme is passionate worship. And in our prayers and in our songs, that's been picked up in a number of ways already. The, the statement is relatively simple. Fruitful congregations enjoy passionate worship that connects people to God and to one another. Well, if so, here we are gathered for worship. How do we gather this morning? How expectant are we? Passionate worship, you see, expects a real and deep encounter with God. And there's a world of difference between saying, I'm going to that old place again, and saying, I'm going with the expectation of meeting with the living God. How open to God are we? Passionate worship is open to what worshiping God might bring about in our lives and the lives of the world. We've just been visiting our grandchild and my parents. Helen had a wonderful time giving Freddie supper. And for a while, and I'll come back to this later in the sermon, he was going at it, mouth open like a young sparrow. And then there got to a time on the feeding when all of a sudden she kept putting the spoon near his mouth. He went, are we open or closed to what God might bring as we come into God's presence? Is our body language one of hands folded and, well, I'm here, but I'm here under sufferance? Or is it open to what God might grant to us? Celtic Christians refer to some places of worship, shrines and holy places, as thin places. They weren't talking about the width of the walls. What they meant was that this was a place where when you went to it, when you said your prayers there or when you offered something or you sang a hymn, it was a place that seemed to be very near to heaven. That the thinness between being here on earth and being with God in heaven seemed very, very close. Fruitful congregations enjoy worship which is expectant, open, and their worship is a thin place. Make no mistake, in spite of church-going figures in Great Britain continuing to fall, albeit more slowly than 10 years ago, and more and more people filling in forms and censuses saying that they have no formal religious faith at all, we still live in a society where huge numbers of people today are searching for worship and reality which is authentic. Life-changing worship, where the life-changing God is experienced, met through the presence of others, is one of the deepest needs of the human condition. And when that happens, when enough space is given for God to inhabit our worship and breathe through it, when we desire and yearn for God, I'll come to that in a moment, 
unfruitfulness occurs. Psalm 84 sums all this up by talking about longing. My soul longs for the courts of the Lord, says the psalmist. In Hebrew, the word soul refers to the most inmost parts deep inside our very being. That which makes us who we are is the center of all we are. And the word cries out, my heart and flesh cry out, the word cries there means like the cry of a hungry baby. Have you seen a hungry baby? We saw one 24 hours ago. And for several minutes before the turning away, as I said, it was like a young sparrow. When a hungry baby is really hungry, all its body cries. There's no pacifying it until it's fed and its hunger's met. So says the psalmist, in effect, in the deepest parts of my being, I am crying out to God like a hungry child whose hunger needs to be met. Or again, this word longs or longing. It's when you want to see a loved one and they're not there. It's a person who you would love to see again and you haven't seen for a long time. It's that feeling when you know that you're going to meet them two weeks on Tuesday and every day seems to be a year long. That's when we say a day in your courts is better than a thousand spent anywhere else because it's worth it. Remember I told you a few weeks ago Rob Frost's favorite story looking at folk going into a church I suspect it was a Methodist church it may not have been they look like they're going to the dentists he said and then he paused and saying when they come out they look like they've been so how do we gather as we come into worship we have to be honest don't we and say that sometimes perhaps often our gathering is not marked by that sense of longing and crying and yearning. It's more habitual than that. And in a sense, there's nothing wrong with developing the habit of worshipping God and attending church among God's people. But if for you, as happens even for ministers like me, if for you, worship sometimes becomes largely a routine, as if any passion or expectancy or longing is but a distant memory. Perhaps today is the day to ask God to come and surprise you again, here, this morning, right now, and remind you of what worship at its heart is about. The word from which we get our English worship comes from a word derived from worthship or ascribing worth to ascribing worth to God who is worthy of all praise and worship and adoration and our scriptures tell us that worshiping that God is not a misplaced worship 
It's not that we ascribe our worship to somebody who will let us down or who is inadequate or unworthy of what is offered from every soul on earth. We're not worshiping one who is lesser or lower than what is God's due. So worship is inevitably focused on God. Whereas, if we're honest, so much of our lives are focused on us. How we feel. What we want. Here is the supreme time and place where we're encouraged to focus less on ourselves and more completely on God. Less on our ambitions and what's filling our head and more about what God's will is for us. There's a world of difference between going through the week and saying, I wonder what I, wonder what I should do about that application for a job. I wonder what I should do about that conversation. And then coming to church and saying, Lord, here is that conversation. Here is that application. What is your will? Do you know the paradox? At the very point that we human beings focus on God rather than ourselves, that's the most likely time when God engages our lives at the very deepest level. So you see, when we're in worship together, we're actually in a very dangerous place. It's here, sometimes in spite of ourselves, that God transforms our lives. It's here that God heals our wounded souls. It's here that God gives us strength to go out into a week that's fast beginning with a strength and a resolve that we just didn't know we had. It's God who renews our hope when all hope seems to be gone. It's God who pardons our sins, sets us free, and sends us on our way rejoicing. It's God who forges our decisions. It's God who inspires compassion in us when we think we've got none left. It's God who deepens our love and binds us to each other in faith, even though sometimes we think we've had enough of everybody else in the congregation. Worship is the optimum environment for our continuing conversion. Whether that be quick or sudden, dramatic or progressive, memorable or unfolding, God expects expects lives to be changed in worship, for attenders of worship to become better disciples of Christ, and for congregations to better resemble the body of Christ. That's what we're about this morning. Is that why we're here? Fruitful congregations expect all this and know and agree that that's why they're here. Psalm 84 also talks not only of the grandeur of God, but also the intimacy of meeting God in worship. It's not just far away and out there, it's close and to heart here. Those lovely images that came through the psalm that we read and were picked up by Vaughan Williams' anthem. 
Here is a place where even a sparrow, the commonest of birds, finds a home and a swallow a nest, a place to reside, to live in. And if there's a place for the commonest bird of the air, the psalmist is saying, there's a place for you before this living and great God. Why, why passionate worship? Why not just worship? And I've told you before that in conversations with the author of the book, several times uh, he said, well, it's just to exaggerate the point. Because as we've noticed, worship can become routine and dry and boring and predictable. Keeping the form, the order of service, while lacking the spirit, the worship of God. Because if an order of service isn't the infrastructure and the scaffolding for worshiping God, and you come out and say, well, I've been through an order of service, but I've never worshiped God, then the whole thing has been pointless. Worship can suffer from insufficient planning, from apathy by attendees, by poor quality, poor environment, by interpersonal conflicts. If I just bring in an insight from another area, the area of church health and growth, death number one to a congregation of any size, internecine strife between members of the congregation who look outwards to the world and say we are one people and the people of God and we're here because we're all here because of God's grace but we won't even sit next to one another and we won't go up on the same table of communion because they are there. And then we expect God to override our pernickettiness, death to passionate worship. When a congregation loses touch with the purpose of worship, then people come and then they go without actually receiving the invitation to follow Christ. We miss it. For fruitful churches, worship is the most important occasion of the week. It's the, it's the high point, listen to this, it's the high point of a lifestyle, not the low point of the weekend. So if it's not that for us, why? Well, perhaps our lack of expectation, our lack of openness. How often do we approach worship a bit like a film critic on TV? What score did you give the preacher this morning? Well, not many if I keep on rabbiting on, but you get the point. How was the music? Well, it was all right, but not to my taste. Was the piano too loud? Well, it's that Gerard. Were the congregation too noisy? Was the room too cold? Were the prayers too long? And these things are important to get right and we do work on them. But if our attention as we come into worship is on the imperfections and the mispronunciations and the weaknesses and the flaws, how on earth can it be passionate, transformative worship? Have we a mindset of expectancy or a kind of forensic examination of what's going to go wrong this morning? 
I once went to a Methodist chapel who had completely renovated their church hall and their sanctuary. They'd spent a lot of money on it and they'd largely done it themselves. This was in the Peak District where I was for some years and they were awfully proud about it and I was their guest preacher and they showed me around. You could almost still smell the new paint. And then they put on the lights and as she flicked the switch, the church steward said, and we've put in all those modern lights, she said, and we flicked him and it was like the blackest hole you've ever come across in your life. You know, those lights that use no electricity, so amen, but they, you can't actually see anything. They'd fitted the whole church out with lights that were clearly too weak to reveal anything. And it was as gloomy as a cave. Now, if you put 20-watt bulbs in an electricity supply and turn the electricity on, flick the switch, you'll get 20 watts of brightness. But if you put a 150-watt bulb in the same socket and turn the light on, you'll get 150 watts brightness. Because the brightness is conditioned by the bulb, not the supply. Now, what limitations are we placing on our worship? Because I'm telling you this, it's not the supply that's in doubt. It's the level at which we want to burn. If our worship is not passionate worship, who's lacking the passion? Fruitful congregations have high what worship because God faithfully joins with them and things become brighter. We've already referred to our psalm today, but uh, you being intelligent and wide awake this morning, I've already spotted a conundrum, and I draw to a close with this, really. I'm applying the psalm to the church But this psalm can't have been about the church because the church didn't exist when it was written. But we're all right because the psalm was written for people who were going to the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple and the church have lots of things in common as well as things different. But the key thing is it's a place where you go to be in the presence of God. It's not that God is absent all the rest of the time, but this is the time where God is especially present. The psalm, Psalm 84, itself wasn't often sung in the temple. It's a psalm, or it's known as a psalm of pilgrimage. In fact, it's a bit out of place in the book of Psalms because most of the psalms of pilgrimage, as they're known, are around 70, uh, 60 and 70, and then there's a gap. Then you get Psalm 84, a psalm of pilgrimage. What were psalms of pilgrimage? They were psalms that were sung as people walked to the temple. Now, don't get the idea here that it's like walking from St. James's Station down the road to here. Once in their lifetime, Jews, wherever they lived in the known world, and some of them hundreds of miles away, tried once to get to a major festival in Jerusalem, and they walked. And sometimes they might walk two, three hundred miles to get there for that day. 
And as they came from the north and the south and the east and the west, they'd slowly, as they got nearer to Jerusalem, gather together with other pilgrims who were heading to the same place. And in order to spend time on the road, they then used to start singing together. And the songs that they sang together were the pilgrimage psalms. This psalm teaches us something crucial about worship. And it's the key thing of my sermon this morning. So forget everything else and remember this. Worship is what happens when you bring everything that's been your life on the road to this place with other people. Here I am, Lord, with the last week with my relationships, with my longings, with my fears, with my illnesses, with my prayers for the people I love, with the things that I've not told anybody else at all. And I come and I offer myself and put myself quietly in your presence. And I offer you my worship. And then at the end of this formal act of worship, When we leave worship and the service ends, we go back into the pilgrimage of our lives and on the road. And the acid test of transforming passionate worship is, are we a different person when we go back on the road, having been in the house of the Lord? Do we practice the command of Jesus? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't happen by attending a service for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. It happens when you're on pilgrimage, and then you hit this high point, and resourced with all that gives, you continue on the way of pilgrimage of your life. So a key question for fruitful congregations is this. Will anyone know that you have met with God this morning by the changes it makes in your life this week? And so, some questions as we close. How do we gather? Are we in an open place for God to move? Or if we're honest as we look at ourselves, are we just obstacles to what God might want to do? Are we longing for God? Is our focus on God or permanently coming back to what we like and what we don't like? And will anyone know the acid test that we have met with the living God this morning? And if so, how? Fruitful congregations share passionate worship. Worship that God longs to give and promises to inhabit. Pray God that we become ever more fruitful in our lives and the lives of us as a congregation together. Amen.